What is your only comfort in life and death? That's an opening question of a catechism that came out of modern-day Germany called the Heidelberg Catechism in 1563, uh, which some describe as a very warm-hearted confession of faith. So as you think about the answer to the question, think about a warm-hearted answer to the question. What is your only comfort in life and death? Here's their answer. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to Him, Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. I wish we had time to unpack all of that, but if you were listening, hopefully you could tell that that is such a good answer, packed full, chock full of gospel truths that have instilled hope in all of God's people since Jesus Christ, since the Old Testament even, even though here it's packaged in 1563 here in the Heidelberg Catechism. These are the truths that have anchored the faith of all of God's people. And in our scripture passage today, in the book that we look at from 2 Timothy, we have Paul the Apostle writing to a younger pastor, Timothy, to instill hope and courage in Christ as he faces difficulty in his ministry. And in many ways, Paul reminds Timothy and us of those same biblical truths that we read about in the answer to question number one there of the catechism. Christian, maybe you find yourself facing some difficulty and in fact needing encouragement and hope to stand, to stand your ground and then to press forward in Jesus Christ. Well, I hope that this passage encourages you as Paul encourages Timothy as he reviews God's grace on the path thus far and God's grace for the future. So if you're in need of encouragement here, look at the passage. As we look at the passage, we see Paul reminding Timothy, reviewing for Timothy God's grace on the path thus far and then God's grace for the future. Please turn to 2 Timothy, and we are in chapter 3. 2 Timothy, chapter 3. Timothy was uh, experiencing some major trials, both internally from within the church, but then also externally from outside of the church. So we know what was going on externally. If you've been with us for uh, 2 Timothy thus far, Paul was being persecuted. In fact, as he writes this letter, if you were to go home and read it this afternoon, you can see that he's actually writing as he is in chains for the gospel. He is imprisoned for the gospel. And if you look in verse, uh, sorry, chapter 4, verse 6, if you just scan those verses as I talk, you'll see there that he has a total understanding that he has completed his mission. 
He writes there of the past tense. He has already run his race. He has finished it. And then now, speaking of this sacrificial offering, he says, I'm already been poured out. I am being poured out as a drink offering. He wrote this letter under the reign of Nero, and Nero at the time was blaming a whole host of things for on Christians. In the mid-60s AD, he was rounding up Christians, burning them alive, feeding them to wild animals. So the state was persecuting Paul as well as the Christian church. Can you imagine being Timothy? He's not in Rome, but Paul was imprisoned in Rome, but Timothy's not in Rome. He's in uh, modern-day Turkey on the coast there in the city of Ephesus. Can you imagine receiving this letter to read about your older brother, your so-called father in the faith, jailed and probably to be killed soon? Of course, there was reason. He probably had reason to think that persecution would rumble all the way to Turkey. Those were the external pressures, fearing for perhaps his own life, certainly fearing for uh, Paul's life, his mentor's life. Not only did he have these external pressures, he also had these internal pressures. There were false teachers in the church, and most likely these false teachers were trying to lure people away, turn genuine Christians away from the true Christ. Just think about that for a moment of what it means, or maybe to be in his position needing to protect other people, where you bear that responsibility. You protect the church, right? That's what you have to do. It's your task. You have to teach those who are tempted to go astray, and you have to teach them and bring them back to the truth. And then also you have to rebuke the false teachers. You get a picture of who, we are de- who he, is, he is dealing with there in chapter 3, verses 1 to 9. You can feel free and skim that right now. They are, as I summarize here, lovers of self rather than lovers of God. Though God had created these people here, they love themselves as if they are God. And God sort of falls to the wayside. They love themselves over God and love themselves over others. You also see there that they are preying upon people. And as we know from 1 Timothy, the letter that Paul wrote to Timothy earlier, that they are preying on people to fill their own pockets of money. They prey on the vulnerable so that they can benefit. They're taking advantage of others. So with those pressures, right, this would cause even the strongest of people here, the strongest of pastors, some degree of stress and anxiety. Probably bring about fear. Maybe timidity. If you imagine right now, if your neighbor right here was teaching false doctrine, teaching false things about Jesus Christ and Christians, and it's your responsibility to rebuke them and teach them, right? Some of us might be timid. I think this is why Paul starts the letter off the way he does. If you look over in 2 Timothy 1.7, 2 Timothy 1.7, he says there that God gave us He's speaking about Timothy and him, right? Timothy's a pastor of this church in Ephesus. God gave us a spirit, not of fear, facing persecutions, external pressures, internal pressures, not of fear, but of power, of love in the gospel, of self-control by the Holy Spirit to, to pursue godliness. Paul goes on to say, look, no matter, about, no matter what people might say about me, No matter if I'm jailed for the gospel, quote, look there in verse 8, chapter 1, verse 8, don't be ashamed of the gospel, nor of me, his prisoner. This is the apostle speaking. No matter what they may do to us, right? Persecution. No, there, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 9. The Lord has saved us. He's called us to a holy calling, all by his grace and his eternal purposes in Jesus Christ. And then in 114, 
And then elsewhere in the book, he says, so therefore guard, guard what has been entrusted to you. Fulfill your ministry. He says, they teach lies, but you rightly handle the word of truth. Lay it down straight. And then to encourage him to have right expectations as he ministers in this fallen world, which we do the same. We minister in the same time between Christ's two comings. He arrived. He's coming again. We live in this time called the last days. So to give him and us right expectations of what it looks like to minister in this fallen world, and then to encourage Timothy to persevere in light of the false teachers, look what he says there in chapter 3. I'm going to go ahead and read all of chapter 3. So that way we uh, understand context here. Really, we're just going to focus on 10 to 13 only. 10 to 13 only, but I'm going to read the whole chapter. Paul says there, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with deceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of truth. Just as Jonathan Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue. In what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We're going to focus on 10 to 13 there. And really, we're going to look at God's grace along the path thus far and then very briefly look at God's grace for the future. He's trying to encourage Timothy. And then we're going to leave, actually, how God's grace meets Timothy in his time of need for every single moment in the Word of God. We're going to look at that next week. So we're going to leave 14 to 17 for next week, and then today we look at 10 to 13. Okay, so to lift Timothy's spirit, we see first that God's grace, or we're just going to walk along this path, right? And we see God's grace on the path thus far. And just this sermon, you know, typically I have, I have points. This one we're sort of going to walk through the passage and simply note, simply note God's grace on the path thus far.
So after writing about the false teachers, right, we just saw verses 1 to 9, everything that they were doing. He says there in verse 10, you, however, he's emphatic on this, this you, however. He's clearly contrasting Timothy and himself on one path, the path of eternal life through Jesus Christ, with that of the false teachers on the path of judgment, the path of folly. And in this entire section, and really the whole entire letter, it's an encouragement to Timothy to fulfill his ministry and continue on the path. And you get that sense, actually, from the beginning of verse 10. You, however, what has he done? He has followed. You, however, have followed. And then in verse 14, we see this turn there. He says, but as for you, also contrasting the false teachers, but as for you, continue. So that's kind of structure of uh, 10 to 17. You have, you have followed. And then in 14, he says, but you now continue. So you see that structure there. If we imagine being Timothy for a moment, I think this would have been an enlivening moment in the letter as he is reading here this letter from his father in the faith. If there were false teachers in this church and we, I, had to battle, the elders had to battle against what they were doing, the difficulty that they were causing, Worried about the sheep that they were preying on, right? We probably wouldn't, once again, would be worried or discouraged, maybe angry even. Again, maybe a bit timid. But as Paul often does in this letter here, he shifts Timothy's focus away from what he cannot control, right? If there's a false teacher here, right? We couldn't physically put tape on the person's mouth and tell them to be quiet. You physically, like, could not do that. You couldn't, he couldn't stop the false teachers from teaching, let's say, at the marketplace as Christians were wandering around and buying goods and maybe they had set up stalls and were evangelizing with their so-called good news. And there you know that some of your weaker sheep are, might fall prey to that, right? You can't actually control that. So he shifts his focus away from what he cannot control, that is the false teachers, and he puts Timothy's focus onto the one who is in control the sovereign, loving God and His grace given to Timothy and Paul. Now, okay, you might look at the passage, you might think like, okay, like where exactly does he do that here? Well, here's, here's, here's what I'm thinking, right? Keep in mind that Paul is building on what he had already written before. He's building on what he had written before. He has already talked about, as we already mentioned, if you look back to 1.8, he's already talked about God's grace in salvation. And he's super determined that Paul would know this, right? Verse 8, therefore do not be ashamed. Chapter 1. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us. He's talking about God's path, God's, sorry, God's grace that had set him on the path to begin with. That had arrested him or stopped him in his tracks, so to speak, and put him on this other path. Not hostile to God anymore, but instead one who is an inheritor of eternal life. Where once he was spiritually dead, now he has been enlivened by the gospel and Christ's spirit. We know too that, he, that Paul wants him to recall his salvation. You know, as he speaks about, let's say, the faith that, look at verse 5 in chapter 1. I, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lewis, Lois. 
And then your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well, right? I think that's meant for him to recall everything that's gone on to bring him to the place where he's at at this particular moment. Not only that, though, but turn over to chapter 3. You see there in verse 14, he says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, right? Well, okay, where did he learn this thing? Where did he, when did he firmly believe these things? Knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood, even from back then, even from childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So there you see God's grace on the path, right? As, as Christ lifted him up and saved him. God's grace in salvation. That's, that's certainly evidence of God's grace on the path thus far. Here's another one, another evidence here. God's grace not only in the present in saving Timothy, but then in giving him a holy calling. Not only does God save him in chapter 1, verse 8, as Paul speaks about there, he has, quote, called us to a holy calling. He has called us. He has given him, given Timothy, given Paul a holy calling to labor for the gospel. He's helping him, right, if you're Timothy, right, he's helping him remember, I remember when I was called to the ministry. I remember that. We're going to talk about when exactly that happens. He's helping him to think about when Timothy first linked arms with Paul, the apostle of Jesus, and then when he went on to go on his missionary journeys to help preach the gospel and plant some churches. So that's another one, right? So you got God's grace and salvation. You got this holy calling. And then you also have God's grace to fulfill the ministry. God's grace to fulfill the ministry. As he is to fulfill his mission like a good soldier of Jesus Christ, he is to depend on the strength of Christ. Chapter 2, verse 1. Can you imagine reading that, let's say? Like, be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus as you are facing that difficulty. Same with us all, right? We all have various tasks and responsibilities that God has given us that he wants us to fulfill. We don't need to be in the ministry to have tasks of God. Maybe you're facing some sort of difficulty. Well, similar to you, right? Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Fulfill your ministries, he's saying. And you might be going through that difficulty thinking, man, this is a difficult position that I'm in. I know the difficulty that I've come from, but yet I'm supposed to fulfill my ministry relying on God's grace to be strengthened by him. This is all God's grace thus far. All of that... All of this grace of God, I think, would have been called to mind in verse 10 when he says, but you, in contrast to them, have followed. You have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings. Now, some think that when Paul says things like, you have followed me, right? Maybe you're exploring Christianity. Some people think that he's talking about like this petty tribalism. As if, you know, you got those guys over there teaching what they so happen to think or they created. And then you got this Christian guy over here talking about his own tribe. You followed me, blah, blah, blah. And really what's at stake is really just petty tribalism. This thing called Christianity, man-made religion. And so maybe you even go to think, oh, Paul just wants to control his little minion, Timothy, because it's his turf. It's the Christian's turf. Well, friends, that's not, definitely not what's going on. Timothy had understood with the mind 
and, and embraced for himself Paul's teaching. That's actually what the word followed means. You're not talking about blind mimicking here, right? We're not talking about a blind following. The word in Greek means or is attached to or certainly includes sort of embracing for yourself. It is understanding with the mind, embracing for himself, and that, it's that type of following. And you see this again there in verse 14. You see this again there in verse 14 once again. But as for you, continue in what you have learned. Not only did you learn it from Paul, grandmother, and mother. It's not just learning. What does he say? He is not only that, but he firmly believes it for himself. He learns it and firmly believes it. It's that kind of following that Paul says Timothy is doing. It's not just tribalism here. He's owning this thing for himself, this truth. This is a genuine believing, trusting, embracing of the Word of God as the Word of God. Not some sort of man-made stuff as we see soon. We see in this passage here, we read already that all Scripture in verse 16 is breathed out by God. We can look at Paul as well to see how he himself understood uh, this gospel and his role as an apostle. Certainly not man-made thing. Turn over to 2 Timothy 1.1. Here we're just looking to see, okay, is this, is this tribalism? Who is this Paul guy? How does he understand himself? How does the Bible, the rest of the Bible speak of him, right? In 2 Timothy 1.1, right, we read here that he is Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. That means he's basically a servant of Christ Jesus. He's sent out by Christ. He is accountable to Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. An apostle, as an apostle, he was chosen of God to lay the foundation of the church as he was to preach the gospel and see churches planted. And it is that gospel that sat over judgment of him. Not him over the gospel. If this was man-made stuff, it would be him sitting in judgment over the gospel as if he created it. I want you to turn over to the book of Galatians. And you see here that he totally understands that the word of God is a sit over judgment of him, even though he is an apostle. Here he, he just opens up this book right into the church of Galatia, and he just rebukes them there, right, because they're deserting the gospel uh, and, and trusting in works. And this is what he says there. He says, I, verse 6 of chapter 1, Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. If you're sitting next to somebody who doesn't know their way around the Bible, just help them get there. That'll be helpful for everybody. He says there, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And look what he says here. But even if we, right, an apostle, somebody who comes in the name of God, someone who comes preaching something in the name of God, even if we, the apostles, or an angel from heaven, right, a heavenly being, should come to you. If we should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, already, that is, taught already, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. You see that there? They already received the true gospel. And Paul says, look, that thing is so important. If anybody, anybody, even if they claim to be an apostle or an angel from heaven were to show up to you and preach a different gospel than the one that you already received, received, he is to be damned. 
You see, there's very clear gospel over even anyone who claims to be an apostle or a heavenly being who might show up at your door. You see there, right? This is not, not any man-made sort of stuff here. And Paul himself has this understanding about himself. So when he says, anyways, you, however, have followed me. Here he's thinking about all of God's grace that has rescued him, brought him from eternal death to eternal life, set him on that path, gave him a calling and a ministry, and was going to strengthen him by the grace of Jesus Christ. All of that, right, would have been exploding from the passage as he read, you have followed my teaching, and on and on and on. Thinking about God's grace on the path, right, we shouldn't miss the obvious as well. Um, God's grace comes to Timothy through Paul as a mentor. God's grace comes to, Paul, to Timothy as Paul, uh, through Paul as a mentor. That's another evidence here, God's grace on this path. He has somebody to follow. I mean, what a blessing it is to have mentors in the faith. What a blessing it is to have mentors in the faith. Now, most of us will not have the kind of mentoring that Timothy did in Paul. And frankly, let's be honest, many of us might not quite be so ready for that. If Paul was to say, let's link arms and go die for Jesus, many of us would, would hesitate to have that kind of discipleship, that kind of in-depth friendship with the apostle of Jesus Christ. It's interesting, in the book of Acts, um, this is going to sound ridiculous, but I hope it sounds ridiculous to make a point. You see, we're going to see in Acts chapter 16 that Paul actually goes to, he meets Timothy. He says, he, Timothy is so spoken well of for being a Christian. He says, I want you to come with me on my second missionary journey. And you know what he does with Timothy? In effort to become all things to all men, do you know what he does to Timothy? And of course, Timothy, of course, is spoken well of as a Christian, right? He's down. He circumcises him. Now, here's the ridiculous. How many of you would say, yes, I'm down, let's go? Even for that, even for that. But Timothy here, he's, I mean, Paul here, he's saying, he's, he's, he's telling Timothy, like, let's go die for the gospel, right? That's the kind of mentorship that's going on. And in the course, there is no doubt friendship that is going on. Again, most of us aren't going to have this type of friendship. Just think about the sheer time, right, that they spent together as they linked arm to arm for missions and church planting and preaching the gospel. I mean, that's, that's, that's incredible, super encouraging, which is how he can say, you have followed my teaching and all these different things which we're going to look at. Timothy knows them all as, as uh, Paul himself writes about them. I mean, even if you have been with, let's say, me, for example, as a senior pastor here, Jason, let's just think about me. Even if you've been with me, for example, back in 2012, let's say, when I was teaching Theology 1, Theology 2 at Biola. That means Theology 1 and 2. Just think about sheer hours. That means you've listened to me lecture, maybe drone on at times, for a total of, let's just round it up to 100 hours. That means in some ways, for those of you who have followed me in that way, insofar as I've followed Christ, by God's grace I have, um, that means you have 90 plus hours, 100 hours of listening to Jeremy's theology, which again, by God, I is biblical. Let's say in 2012, you've been at First Baptist Church of Hacienda Heights and thinking of my sermons alone. Let's just assume I preach, you know, maybe 50, 60 percent of the time. Add those 100 hours of theology lectures to three 
had 300 hours of sermons, Bible studies, when we used to have them on Wednesday nights, small group studies, discipleship meetings, casual get-togethers when the whole entire church could fit in our home when we lived in Hacienda Heights. So right there, you're already looking at maybe 400, maybe 500 hours of what it looks like to follow me insofar as I follow Jesus Christ, right? Even that pales in comparison to what Paul and Timothy have, which is super encouraging. But, you know, those 500 hours, those aren't, uh, there's not a small amount of hours. Christian, just as Paul said to others, follow me and so far as I follow Jesus Christ, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, we, you Christian, are to call others to do the same. Now, some of you guys might be thinking, like, man, that feels egotistical. I don't know if I could do that. That feels like, uh, it seems like a, a, a pride thing, if I were to say that. Or maybe you might be thinking, like, oh, I think that that would be, like, self-centered for me to do that. I mean, certainly people might make it to be about that. But God does not intend it to be like that. It's simply part of what Christian discipleship is supposed to look like. Think of parenthood, for example, where parents say to their children, follow after me and you will grow into maturity. Don't follow me here. Follow me in these particular ways and you'll grow into maturity. God has designed Christian growth in maturity actually to work exactly like this. Christ comes and he says, follow me. And so his people are to walk in his footsteps. Paul says to other Christians in 1 Corinthians 11, once again, follow me insofar as I follow Jesus Christ. And we too, you too Christian, insofar as we walk after Jesus Christ, can say, follow me, follow after me. So I get the instinct that, it is, it, that some people think it feels like it re reflects some kind of pride. Right? Maybe you think that. But you realize that asking someone to follow you does not need to be a pride thing. If we get, if we understand that we are who we are by the grace of God, then asking someone to follow us insofar as we follow Jesus actually acknowledges the grace of God. Do you understand that? If you're headed this direction in your hostility towards God, towards hell, God has changed us and he's made us and sanctified us in all these different ways right we could turn up to people and say look follow me insofar as i follow jesus christ because you know what i wasn't like that before i'm not like that i was not like that before but by god's grace he has made me this way now i learned a whole lot of i learned a whole lot about what it looks like to follow jesus from other people about what it looks like to love other people because i'm stinking selfish I learned what it looks like to be a steward of God's resources and the money he has given me because I blew it a whole, I blew a whole bunch earlier when I didn't know about God. I've learned a whole lot about what it looks like to love holiness and to walk in holiness because I was ungodly. I didn't care about my kids before, or I didn't care about my wife before, but after being a Christian, after following Jesus' love, who loves his church like a, like a husband to a bride, the perfect husband, I know about godly husbanding a little bit more and godly parenting a little bit more. Think about evangelism. Think about how to work hard and not be lazy. Think about how to battle lust, how to battle anger, how to battle materialism. And so as we learn about all of these things, having become Christians and having God change us by His Spirit, we can legitimately say, 
with no pride at all, follow me insofar as you see what is biblical. Take what you think is helpful and leave what you don't. There have been times, um, even right now, we have somebody living with us, a Christian member of the church. We've done this in the past as well for a number of years. We invite people to live with us. And um, insofar, as remember, insofar as I remember, everybody who's lived with us, we sit down with them at some point in time and say, look, we want you to live with us. This is the reason why. And you're going to see a whole lot of things. We're not perfect people. We're still sinners, Christians saved by God's grace. I want you, though, to take what you think is helpful and leave what you think is not. Basically, take what you think is biblical and leave what you think is not helpful and maybe even sinful. Uh, and that's really kind of what all Christians should be doing. Well, Christian, let me ask you. Have you taken the initiative to invite others to follow you? Just as Paul does here. You have followed me. I hope you take the initiative to invite others to follow you insofar as you follow Jesus Christ. As D.A. Carson puts it straightforwardly, it is biblical. It is biblical to say to another Christian, if you want to know what it's like to be a Christian, watch me. I was meeting up with... Um, me, Caesar, and Jay were hanging out this last week, and uh, we were uh, seeking to do somebody spiritual good. There's a guy who's exploring Christianity. And uh, one reason why I wanted to introduce this man to Jay and Caesar is because they're both real estate agents, and this guy's a real estate agent. And I know both of Caesar and Jay's stories as they were not Christians then became Christians and all the stuff that they learned about and how that affected their lives. And I wanted this guy to hear it from them about how God changed them. So he knows a little bit more of what it looks like to be a Christian doing these types of things in the world. And so after the meeting, you know, I thought it was a super encouraging meeting. He did too. He goes back and says, man, it was a super encouraging time. Those guys are inspirational, he said. Um, and he was genuinely helped because he's coming to understand more of what it looks like for those Christians over there who go to First Baptist Church to follow Jesus Christ, even as they handle their own business, etc., etc. So, Christians, take the initiative. Ask others to follow you. If you are a Christian, and let's say you want to learn what it looks like to follow, to learn for yourself, then let me encourage you to get together with some older Christians. Get together with some older Christians and ask them about whatever it is that you feel like you need to know. Ask them about whatever it is that you feel like you need to know. But just go in with right expectations, right? Don't expect them necessarily to be like your best friends for life, your BFFL. Uh, not everybody can be best friends with everybody. If you look at Jesus' life, right, he did not spend time equally with everyone, nor did he spend equal time with his disciples even. But he had chosen three to spend a special amount of time with. So just go in with right expectations, right? You're there to learn. You're there to ask them. You're there to receive an answer, you know, to, to, to learn from them. And just say, hey, yeah, you ask them, just simply teach me. And if there are a few of you out there, and you know that you're wrestling with that same sort of something, let's say it's like, how do you reach out to those who don't believe the gospel? How do you reach out to the ungodly, right? That's a situation that Timothy and Paul are wrestling with. How do you die well and things like this? Just say, hey, we all want to know about this particular thing. And then you invite that person together. Just get those people together. Invite some godly people over the godly people that you trust, feed them some food, make them dinner so you're serving them as they serve you, and then have them teach you, maybe through a question and answer time. Maybe some of you guys don't even know where to begin in terms of this following. Let me encourage you to ask someone to help you. 
If you have a specific question or there's some issues, specific issues that you might want to grow in, let me know, and then I can try and point you to somebody in a good, I can try and point you in a good direction. So this asking others to follow you in humility insofar as we follow after Jesus Christ, and then also with us seeking to follow others, this should be the normal practice of Christians. Seeking wisdom, feedback, teaching. It should also be a regular practice to just go encourage them to live it out and then come back and then we'll fine-tune certain things as necessary. If you think about it, if you just look around here, we could, we could have so many mentors if we have eyes to see them. We could have so many, eyes, so many mentors if we had eyes to see them. We're all wrestling with so many different issues. We are following Jesus Christ in our struggle with materialism. We're trying to follow Jesus coming from a racist background. We're trying to follow Jesus as we struggle with bitterness and resentment, struggle to forgive others. We follow Jesus having struggled with substance abuse. We follow Jesus as we wrestle against pornography and lust. We seek to follow Jesus in failing health with a death sentence right in front of us. We follow Jesus right in losing loved ones. We follow Jesus as we try to start a business and be wise with money, whereas previously we didn't. We follow Jesus having coming from the background of the occult. We follow Jesus in so many different ways. These are like mentoring opportunities for all of you. The question is, though, do we have eyes to see? There's been many a time, and I'm not thinking of anybody in this church particularly, uh, where me and Melanie have invited people over, and what we intend to show them, people don't have eyes to see. We invite people in, and you can really tell, like, you know, they, they have other things on their mind. Like, that's okay. You know, it, that's part of, like, discipling, right? You meet, try and meet people where they're at and push them accordingly where they need to as they are ready. And as they are ready, whether it be one year, two year, three year, four year, five year, then we continue to do that. We link arms and we move forward following after, ultimately, Jesus Christ. So, I, you know, I definitely wanted to draw that out here. God's grace on the path is, is given to Timothy through Paul. As he says there really affectionately, I think you have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings. What do all these things mean? You see there, my teaching. We know that Paul dedicated himself to preaching Christ and him crucified. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We know that he preached Jesus, the fulfillment of all of God's promises from the Old Testament scripture. Contrast that again to the false teachers. The lies that, they, that, that only brought about endless quarrels over things outside of the Word of God. Things that don't matter, they're spending so much time on. Paul's like, I'm teaching Jesus and Him crucified. Timothy had come to believe and embrace this teaching once again for himself. In Acts chapter 13 and 14, Paul goes to Lystra, which is Timothy's hometown. And there he preaches. There Paul preaches the gospel. Now, Timothy could have been present when Paul preached the gospel there. He maybe even came to faith through Paul's preaching. That's why Paul calls Timothy a son in the faith in his letters. Timothy had embraced it for himself. That is the gospel. 
Christ and him crucified for the forgiveness of sins and right standing with God in fulfillment with all of God's promises. And then, of course, as, as belief informs behavior, Paul then goes on, what else did Timothy follow or embrace for himself, know for himself? That is my conduct. That is his entire way of life. And then my aim in life. Timothy followed my aim in life. Think of Paul's aim in life as he went on his missionary journeys. Right? It, again, going, thinking of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, he said, it was my only aim to preach Christ and cru him crucified. Here's the substance, Christ and him crucified. What's his aim? My purpose is to preach that and that alone. He says, you followed my faith, his believing and trusting in Christ, which of course involves his faithfulness to Christ, I think. You have his patience, his patience towards hard-to-love people. Think about these people here. Think about all of his missionary journeys and all the things that he suffered there. Not only that, though, but he goes on from patience to love. Love towards God and all of his creative people. This love that compelled him to go to the nations with the gospel. He says, my steadfastness, right? His patient endurance in difficult circumstances. That's steadfastness. Different from patience. Steadfastness here refers to circumstances. Patient endurance in difficult circumstances. But look where the list ends up. My persecutions and sufferings. That's what he says that he followed there. It's crazy here that as Paul helps Timothy reflect on all that he has followed, he helps Timothy to follow in the moment. Because that's what Timothy's doing. He's following, right, in Paul's persecutions and sufferings. What's interesting here is, is that though Paul mentions persecutions and sufferings in general, he talks specifically about persecution that he experienced on his first missionary journey, his first missionary journey, and especially in the cities of Antioch, Iconium, and then Lystra. Remember, Timothy was from Lystra, and maybe Timothy had not only heard the gospel from Paul in Lystra, but saw... Paul stoned in Lystra. This is in Acts chapter 14. You can read about it later. He stoned in Lystra, then dragged out of the city and left for dead. Maybe Timothy even saw that with his own eyes. If Timothy was converted under Paul's preaching during that, his uh, first visit, it means, you see what it means there? It means that Timothy's earliest memories as a Christian about what it means to be a Christian and a preacher and a minister of the gospel involves suffering. Just let that sink in, right? Let's say he's converted at Paul's preaching, which maybe he was. At the very least, he probably knew about it. He knows from the beginning that to walk after Jesus is to walk like Paul, which means suffering. And so on this path, Christ puts him on. It involves suffering from the beginning, at least in knowledge, and all, as he goes through, it certainly involves suffering later on as he is here experiencing it. For Timothy, in the beginning of his Christian life, he's aware that following Christ involves suffering and that it is par for the course for the soldier who goes into battle for a crucified Savior. It's appropriate that Paul brings to mind his own sufferings that Paul, Timothy followed. Paul wanted Timothy to be all the more prepared for trials in the midst of them and then strengthened by the grace of Christ. Paul knew full well what had been the end of earthly scores or the earthly end of scores of Christians. That is opposition, persecution, and death. It was Jesus' earthly end. And as Jesus taught, if people were to follow Jesus, it would be the, their end as well, generally speaking. 
Jesus said, if the world despises and even hates you, it's because they despised and hated me first. John 15, 18. It is what Paul echoes in our passage. If you look there in verse 12, look there in verse 12, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. He says there, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ, Jesus will be persecuted. Now, friends here, Paul is not stating that this is going to be the case one for one. Here he's laying down a general rule for Christians. Certainly there are many Christians who have not and will not experience physical persecution. But as a general rule, it has happened and is happening and will happen to be the case that those who desire to live godly lives after Jesus will be persecuted. Just as it was for Paul, so it is for many Christians today. Millions of Christians today live in these last days, you look there in verse 13, where evil people and imposters or swindlers and cheats, they go on from bad to worse. They're progressing. They go on from bad to worse. They are deceiving and being deceived. They deceive other people, freely prey on other people, take advantage of them, because they themselves have been deceived by the devil, as Paul had mentioned earlier. There are friends, you realize that there are millions of Christians around the world today who are, in fact, oppressed by their governments and persecuted by others, which is why we seek, actually, to pray for the persecuted church in many of our Sunday morning services in the pastoral prayer. Timothy knew that following Jesus meant that, that he must bear, many must bear, a literal cross, as Jesus said. And Timothy himself, at least, saw this up close. Some may wonder, right, how did Timothy follow uh, what does it mean for Timothy to follow after Paul's persecutions and sufferings? Well, again, after going on his first missionary journey, after going to Antioch and then Iconium and Lystra, Paul then returns back to Lystra, right? He goes to those cities, goes on his missionary journey. He returns for his second journey in Acts 16. He goes back to Lystra, and there he meets Timothy. He actually meets Timothy for the very first time. And again, he's spoken so high, highly of as a disciple of Jesus Christ that Paul decides to bring Timothy along with him on the journey where at least... At least Paul and another missionary named Silas experience mob violence where they are beaten and imprisoned. Now, Scripture is absolutely clear. Timothy is on that journey. He is on the second missionary journey with Paul. But where Scripture is not so clear is to where Timothy is when Paul and Silas are being persecuted. It seems entirely reasonable to think that Timothy is at least present to see the bruises on Paul's body as he ministers to Paul upon his release from jail. And maybe he even experienced it firsthand. Regardless, he is close enough to have followed Paul in his persecutions and sufferings. If you're visiting with us today, this whole conversation, right, this whole suffering for Jesus thing, it might, might sound odd to, to some of you guys, some of us. Why would you want to choose to walk this path of suffering for your Christ? I, I, get the, I get the instinct to ask that question, but let me ask you a question. What do you think is worth dying for? What do you think is worth dying for? I know most of us here are, are pretty young, relatively young, but at some point in time, you'll have to face your own declining body, let's say in middle age. Maybe some of you guys experienced this much earlier than middle age, maybe even in your 20s, maybe even right now. And maybe, like some here, you've had to bury a loved one, maybe even recently. Maybe you've had to bury a loved one when you were younger, 10 years old, 11 years old. At some point in time, right, in facing these things, people not only ask the great question of, 
what should I live for, right? You think of the young bug, lots of energy, 18 years old. What is it that I should live for? And then after 20 years goes by, for many, they, you begin to experience some things, and then you ask a different question. What should I die for? Right? When you're young, you say, you say, give me something to live for. And when you're a little bit older, you start saying, give me something else to die for. We all live and die for something, right? You're going to live and die for your comfort, chasing or possessing millions. Rich people will tell you that money doesn't secure joy. Non-Christians will tell you that. You're going to live for pleasure in sex and drugs. I mean, just think about that for a moment there. After doing those things, <laughs> are you actually satisfied? Or, actually, are, or are you left actually wanting more? And then another one to do it again, and then again, and then again. It doesn't leave you satisfied. It leaves you actually addicted. It leaves you forever unsatisfied, needing and requiring more. Those things don't satisfy you. Some live for the family name. But when you think and when you stop and think about it, our family names have produced some scoundrels, haven't they? And your family name will actually go on to produce some scoundrels even more. Names come and go. As does fame or reputation. And friends, let's be real, right? No one will remember you when you are, or no one will remember you in a hundred years from now, 500 years from now, a thousand years from now. At best, you're just going to be a little, tiny footnote in history. Some live and die for this family, right? That might certainly be more morally acceptable, but as a fact, it is incredibly naive to think that our hope is in fellow man. Why would you want to follow other people in living for their families or their names or for pleasure in sex and drugs or for comfort or for power? For the Christian, for Paul and Timothy who suffer, right? They live and die for Jesus Christ and his gospel, the real Jesus who is so good to his people. For the real Jesus who came on a mission of love and grace to bring back sinners into fellowship with God the Creator. This is the message of the gospel. This is why it is good news. That though we had rebelled, Jesus gave himself. God the Son, the eternal Son, gave himself. He took on flesh, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross for sinners so that everybody would be forgiven of their sin if they would turn and believe. So he dies on the cross. He bears the wrath that his people deserved. He didn't sin, but he bore the sin and the wrath that we deserved. On the third day, he got up from the dead, showing that payment was made. And so all who believe can live for that creator. And if you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian, that is your creator. This is why they gladly, joyfully, willingly suffer for the gospel. It's for the good and real Jesus who is the Lord and Savior, right? Your millions and your Gucci suit is not going to help you when you are bones in the ground. In Christ and in Him alone there is salvation and there is rescue. You can know Christ, the Christ who is worth living and dying for, if you would turn from your sin and believe on him, and friends, you will be saved and know eternal 
life. That's why he starts off the way he does. In the beginning, you look there. 1-1, one, one, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. He's a messenger, the official messenger that carries the good news of Jesus by the will of God that other people might be saved according to the promise of life. Eternal life in Jesus, forgiveness of sins, right standing with God, adoption into his family, reconciled with your maker, the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. This is the Christ that Paul and Timothy lived and died for. If you have any questions about this, please feel free to talk to me at the back of the door. I'd be happy to talk to you about the gospel of Jesus Christ and why it is a promise of life. With all this talk about persecution and suffering, the conversation, though, does not end there. The conversation does not end there, not for the Christian. As Paul goes on, he actually moves on to triumph. He moves on to triumph, rescue, and triumph. Here's another piece of evidence of God's grace on the path, that is, rescue and triumph. Remember, Paul is encouraging Timothy, and encouraging Timothy, that in following me, you have followed Jesus. And though, yes, I certainly am persecuted, locked in jail, about to be killed, executed for the faith, though I have suffered and you yourself have followed, there will be rescue. You look what he says there in verse 11 of chapter 3. He's talking about his persecutions, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. He's looking at his own path, and he's saying, yes, deliverance right there. And Timothy, there's deliverance for you. He's not just recounting facts here. He's enlivening Timothy's hope through personal testimony. I endure, but God rescued me. That's hope and confidence. Just as Jesus' followers follow in his footsteps of suffering, so we follow in his footsteps of triumph and resurrection after death. Certainly there's God's grace in saving and calling and strengthening for the ministry. Here Paul reminds him of God's grace in God's own faithfulness. What does it mean there? The Lord rescued me from them all. The Lord rescued me from them all. Given Paul was still alive, God had rescued him from his persecutors. Though beaten, though imprisoned, though stoned and left for dead, left for dead God kept him alive, right? So in a very real sense, very practical sense, he's not, uh, God kept him alive. That's what he's saying. He's not at all saying that God would do that forever. But he is noting, but he is noting that that is what God has done thus far. He's just stating simple fact. But friends, do not think that for God to be faithful means He'll keep you forever alive and that you will never die or ever experience suffering or persecution. Clearly, Paul actually suffered. You guys get that, right? Clearly, Paul actually suffered. Yet still, he is able to say, the Lord rescued me from them all. And even as he stares at a death sentence, he's still able to encourage Timothy who follows him, the Lord rescued me. And the implication, of course, is that he is going to do it again. It's instructive for us, isn't it? It means we all can suffer and face persecution and we can die and God is still faithful. You know how we know that? Because the Lord's work to rescue his people continues even after death. This is where we not only have God's grace on the path thus far, but we have God's grace for the future. God's grace for the future. This is what he brings up there in 4.18. In 4.18. Right, he's sitting there 
He's jailed. He's going to die. He knows that he's being poured out like a drink offering. He has run the race. He's finished the course. Look what he says there in 4.18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. It's the same root word there that he uses, at least in Greek. Same root word there, rescue. It's the same word that he speaks of in uh, 3.11, the Lord rescued me. We as Christians do well to take note. We certainly don't preach a prosperity gospel here as if Jesus wants us to be healthy and wealthy in this life, and that's exactly what's going to happen if we have enough faith. That runs against Scripture. As we just read, everybody who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted. But some of us, guys, can embrace a soft prosperity gospel. Right? When things don't go our way, we don't, when we don't get the job we want, when we, don't get the, when we don't make the money we dream of, when we don't have the family that we prefer, or we don't have a family at all, we then judge God unfaithful. We know we've embraced some sort of soft prosperity gospel when, though we know in God's faithfulness and steadfast love, Yahweh's steadfast love, He sent His Son to take on flesh to die on the cross for our sin and to save us from eternal hell and judgment. And then He brings us into His family where we now know Him as God the Father and no longer do we fear Him as God the Judge. We know His love. We know His forgiveness. We know His endless grace and mercy and access to His throne at any time we want. We know a little bit of His steadfast love, that it is so strong that even in death, He says that nothing will separate us from the love of Jesus. And even after death, we know that when we are laying in that grave, He will rescue us and bring us into this heavenly kingdom. We know we've embraced a soft prosperity gospel when in light of all of those things, we judge God to be unfaithful because we don't drive a BMW, the Mercedes-Benz we've always dreamed of, the job we've always wanted, the family we have always desired. Friends, we do well to take our cues from Paul. Did you notice Paul's situation? He is in jail. He is going to die. He probably knows again that he's going to be executed, as he said he's being a drink offering, but yet, in the midst of it all, what is his only hope in life and in death? It is the Lord. It's in who the Lord is and what he would do despite earthly circumstances that come in living in a sinful world. No matter what happens, he knows God will be faithful in his steadfast love. That's why Paul, who suffered horribly for the gospel, could still write with absolute confidence in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 to 9, though we may be persecuted by the world, though we are persecuted, we are never forsaken. Why is that? Because even in suffering, and even in breathing our last, and being laid in the ground, God never forsakes His people. But the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead will give life to our mortal bodies one day. You see the implication for Timothy and all of us? Same Lord who delivered Paul from death, or the same Lord who would deliver Paul from death, is our same Lord. Same Lord as Timothy, whose faithfulness surrounds his people. For Paul and Timothy, this thought encouraged faithfulness in 
ministry to continue on. We're going to look at next week. What is he to do in light of all these things? Preach the word of God. And this truth is to encourage your faithfulness as well, Christian, as you live your life for the only one worth living and dying for. And our passage today, Paul teaches Timothy and us to run and die well, hoping in the only hope there is, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, what an encouragement it is to review your grace given to Timothy, and then also to think about your grace given to us as we run this race for you. God, just as there is grace to rescue us from hell and judgment and our own sin, and to bring us into the kingdom of your beloved Son from eternal death to eternal life. So, Lord, we know that there is grace to meet us even right now to sustain us and to strengthen us as we walk after you. God, we pray, Lord, that whatever it is that we are facing, and, Lord, you know that we face many difficulties in life, whether it be health, stresses over family or job or all sorts of things, or relationships. Lord, we ask that we would run faithfully, that like good soldiers of Jesus Christ, we would give ourselves to the mission that you yourself have given to us, knowing, Lord, that you indeed are with us. Lord, we pray that you would embolden us and you would give us courage to do what we know we ought to do the good works that you have laid out for us to do. Lord, we pray that we would joyfully do these things, trusting in you and in you alone. Prepare us for the work you have given us. And may we run this race with endurance, all by the Spirit of God and his power. In your name we pray, amen.